I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. For the past six years, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, uh, which is a United Nations body that focuses specifically on the global climate crisis, has released an annual report detailing the developing collapse that is steadily engulfing the planet. And what's important about the IPCC is that it uses an enormous amount of data from the past year. It uses everything from plastic-related pollution to emissions to possible solutions on a variety of other issues that are increasingly taking center stage when it comes to where humanity stands in terms of being able to live on this planet. And the other important thing to note about the IPCC report is that no one cares about it. Not really, at least. I haven't read it. I doubt you have either. Yeah, it makes headlines every time this year, and media people talk generally about its importance and what it spells out for the planet, but the sheer depth of the data that's amassed for the report is usually largely overlooked. And that's because most people don't respond emotionally to scientific reports. Journalists often do a very poor job at in-depth environmental analysis, in part because they usually lack the expertise and research background to be able to translate the significance of exactly what they're looking at. Journalists are usually scientists' biggest nightmare because of this, but for this topic, we need each other. What we also need is another approach towards talking about climate change that will actually get people to understand what's happening beneath their feet. And so that brings me to my discussion with my guest today, Angie Jahar. Angie is the founder of Earthlings Coexistence, which is a local foundation focused on climate education and activism. But what really makes her such a good person to talk about everything from this IPCC report to city planning to even gender inequality is that she uses intersectionality, which is a philosophical approach towards disseminating how social or even health issues relate to the larger picture about climate change. So, for example, rising sea levels are difficult to use as a device to alarm the public. But a rise in cancer rates in your neighborhood or your family certainly is. And the reasons that join these two seemingly disconnected things is intersectionality in practice. So with that explanation, here's my conversation with Angie. Angie, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing all right. A little damp. That's oh, okay. yeah. yeah. It's a nice weather today. Yeah, we both like rain, so yeah, that's okay. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and speaking of the weather, let's talk about the climate. That was a terrible transition. You got me, you got me really early today. <laughs> yeah, the whole conversation about, especially in the Kurdish language, of not having the equivalent of climate. People think that we are talking about weather, but which is not. Oh, that's interesting. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, it's kind of, some people say we have it, but it's not really. Academically speaking, scientifically speaking, we don't have that word so far, as I have discussed with many people. Could you explain to our audience what the difference between weather and climate is in uh, English? And then I'm actually curious about your own opinion about what the Kurdish solution to that sort of conundrum might be grammatically. I think when we don't have a word, we can use the foreign word to, mm -hmm. especially when we are talking about policymaking and an issue that's global. But the weather is weather is day to day. But climate is actually we can think about it in this way. Climate takes the time factor into it. So it's it's the fluctuation in the differences throughout the atmosphere, the land, the water, and all of that throughout time. So we, we are talking about centuries, 
we are talking about millennia. So the weather conditions and the uh, and the climate, that all of it together makes up the climate. So mm-hmm. you have the time factor into it. So you are getting a data actually. So it's the the results of all of these years together. You are going to see an average change between what was then and now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and weather in Kurdish is hawa, correct? Kashu hawa. Kashu hawa. Yes. Uh, so you would just use kashu hawa climate in uh, a conversation about Kurdish, like when you're talking about climate change. Uh, no, they use jinga, but jinga is environment actually. It's okay. not climate. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah, because thinking about climate is basically just an aggregate amount of data. Exactly. Time. It's it's more academic, I think. Uh, and even I think it comes. It's a Latin word. So uh, in most of the European languages, it's a different way of saying climate. Some, just, yeah. yeah, some yeah. connection to, to the Latin root, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a, I'm, I didn't think we'd start this conversation off with etymology, but uh, yeah, fun. Um, what I was hoping to actually start this conversation about <laughs> uh, was not the rain or the etymology of climate, but um, the news this week uh, about the IPCC report uh, that came out. And um, these reports are released annually, and for me personally, they get a little... Um, Exhausting, just from a, a journalistic perspective of, of we always uh, turn March uh, and April into sort of uh, climate freakout uh, months uh, for the news cycle, and then we move right on. Uh, I actually haven't read the report <laughs> because it comes again. It comes out every year. It's exhausting. The news is always bad uh, and a little repetitive. And so I was actually hoping uh, to get sort of a summary of your takeaways from the report. Um, yeah, I would understand why sometimes it could be a little bit depressing, especially when it comes to the IPCC reports. But we have to also understand that it's actually a warning, a sign of that we still have hope. We still have a window, even though it's a really tight window to do something when we can do right now. We are the last generation to be able to do something about the climate crisis. So it, it is hopeful that there are um, thousands of hundreds of scientists working on this. It's uh, it's something that does not have any personal gain, but it's just telling everyone, the policymakers, the people, the public, the uh, organizations, anyone, all of us in this world, that these are the the science-backed data and analysis that we have. What is what, what has been the change throughout the years? What where is our chances of making some changes? How much can we uh, reduce the impact of the climate crisis? Some of them, while we still have time, some of them are irreversible, but we could uh, reduce the damage. So usually, so we all know the causes of the climate change, the climate crisis. We all know what is causing global warming. Do we all know the... Why don't you explain? I mean, when I say we all know, I mean, most of the policymakers know, most of the... Uh, corporations know they have known since the 1980s when it was first by their scientists detected. So this one, the public doesn't know, I think, because we have a lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. But the IPCC is a guideline into how to, you know, if there was a bump, how to try to stop it from going off. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a step by step telling you what to do. Uh, so I want to go into the actual like point by point data sets of the report and. Uh, then I'm gonna. The reason I'm asking you about uh, sort of what the causes of uh, these climate changes, uh, uh, the climate change in different regions, is, is uh, you you have a an intersectional approach to your climate advocacy, and we'll get into what that means in a second. 
Um, but I, I, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing you apply that own approach to your analysis of this report. Could you do that for me? I think the report already has an approach of intersectionality because it talks about all the different aspects of life, mm -hmm. how we can make changes, whether it be from the governmental side and the corporation sides, from the education, from the infrastructures that we have, to to the way we create our supplies, the energy supplies, the how we consume the use of water, land, and our resources. So it talks about a lot of old aspects. So it's an intersectional point of view to, it's not just one thing. It's not just telling you, here you go. These are the issues. It's giving you the solutions from all different aspects, from each sector taken from what they could do, what's their part in it. And I'm curious about where you first started embracing intersectionality for your own climate advocacy. Can you, could you give me sort of a background as to where you started embracing that philosophy? Yeah, sure. So I remember since a very young age, like I have always been curious about and loved the earth and the environment. Uh, I have had an interest for it. So first of all, you always learn about the basic things, the plastics and, you know, yeah, it's getting warm and all of that and some pollutions. But then you try to, when you search about it, what you are being told, whether it be on the internet or sometimes people talking about it in books. I would, I, I hope I could say books, but no, we don't have any climate literacy in our curriculums. So it's always talking about how you can reduce your impact. Yes, that's while this is really important, it, the full picture is never considered. So you have to take into account why, how did we get here in the first place? What are the playing factors? Uh, for us to be able to find any solution for any problems, we got to first of all diagnose what's causing these kind of problems. So an interse intersectional approach came from, because there's a lot of underlying, especially for, while it is for every region throughout the world, for us, we have a lot of factors that play into how we can respond to the climate crisis and how we should, and why are we being affected in different ways mm -hmm. to, well, the, to we, different countries compared to different countries. Okay. Uh, well, it, it's interesting because uh, you also have to talk about uh, the different <laughs> different countries' approach to intersectionality as well because uh, it's for most Americans, and I'll, I'll speak as uh, one myself, um, intersectionality is often affiliated with social issues. Uh, it is usually not affiliated with uh, scientific uh, uh, solutions to, uh, you know, environmental change. Um, it is often affiliated with uh, conversations about race or uh, feminism or, or, or even, you know, sort of broader questions about class. Um, and um, all of those factors, it's not like these things are unrelated. Uh, all of these factors, uh, the, the environment and race and, and feminism and class and, you know, sort of the broader scheme of how the world is run um, and who benefits and who, who, who doesn't benefit from the, the systems that are in place in any one country or all of them together, uh, they, they do interconnect. And so uh, intersectionality is, is not only an, a very important sort of approach to talking about climate, it is really the only approach. Definitely, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you mentioned the move, the some of the movements that you said intersectionality have been associated with before. I think all of these issues actually like go hand in hand with the environment because mm -hmm. we are seeing the effects of 
climate change, the climate crisis, the catastrophes that we are seeing on different races, on different uh, this, uh, the social issues that we are seeing. Uh, it is an aftermath after all, because you got to understand that the systems in place in the first place are what led to the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. And these systems are the core of how each community, each nation is run. So whether it be from gender inequality to races to sh- social issues. Uh, so yeah, like the reason why these kind of people are being affected compared to other classes also in, in a population, uh, environment is going to affect the poor and the underprivileged and the people who have been discriminated against mm-hmm. much more than the people who are privileged. So uh, I think, uh, for uh, as you said, the only way to go to towards environmental solution is through intersectionality. So we've zoomed out uh, very aggressively and quickly <laughs> with this conversation. I want to zoom back in. Let's talk about uh, what is the intersectional approach uh, towards discussing Iraq and uh, the Kurdistan region's uh, current situation regarding natural resources and, and the climate crisis. Okay, so uh, first of all, when we are talking about the natural resources of our region, uh, there's a lot of facets that come into play of how we ended here, why mm-hmm. we ended here. And uh, when uh, when we hear the word natural resources, especially in this region, that means, uh, well, the really not great news, which is fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you have a when you have a nation's sole economy depend on fossil fuels, that means the whole social structure, the economical the safety of people, the geopolitical situation that also comes into play, all of it are relied to when you have one single source and that single source is the one of the two driving forces of climate change, then you are never going to be stable for all kinds of problems, all kinds of crises that this region is facing, whether it be financial, educational, social all of these, they are tied to the driving force of the climate crisis, which is fossil fuels. So something that we talked about actually before our interview was uh, you're keen on avoiding sort of jumping into uh, the political aspect of uh, uh, certain conversations. And, and one reason that surprised me is because you are you are quick to talk about fossil fuels uh, and, and uh, 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 gas as... Um, Sort of all one three of the, actually oil, yeah. gas, and coal. Well, but all three are incredibly political here. Yes, uh, it is. I mean, they're inherently tied to the political structure of this country for the past, I mean, fifty years. I don't understand personally uh, how you would take an intersectional approach towards trying to find solutions to these problems without diving into politics. So I was wondering if you could like sort of explain why you don't uh, like to uh, bring that into your own form of advocacy. I will try to answer that in a concise short way but I would say yes Uh, internationally speaking uh, whether we like it or not even since a really young age I never like to get into that aspect of anything like aside from environment but unfortunately the environmental crisis is goes hand in hand with the political advocacy and all of that but I wouldn't say unfortunately we have a healthy political discourse in this region Mm. so I would I would think how do you mean well, as I said, it's not healthy to have a discourse. I mean, you know, here's the thing I will tell you. Uh, 
any movement, any kind of activism you would like to do within the environmental movement, as I said, uh, it would have... Le- you will do more harm to the movement itself than good because there's a lot of strings attached. So the whole pro- uh, the environmental issue will get lost in the process. So your solution... Uh... It's not my solution. It's just trying to be... Trying to focus on the problem mm-hmm. without going into politics because when you go into politics, unfortunately, there's a lot of strings attached. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's zoom even further in and talk about Erbil uh, yes. and, and the, the issues that uh, Erbil faces uh, regarding all sorts of things. I mean, summer's coming. I mean, it's raining right now, but the dust storms will come. Uh, that will continue for the next decade uh, and more. Um, there's all sorts of different, I mean, there's issues with electricity as well. There's all sorts of things you can list, but uh, how would you take sort of an intersectional approach towards providing solutions for Erbil, whether it's with uh, regards to education or city planning um, or you know, sort of larger social issues like, for example, gender inequality uh, uh, that we've talked about before? I think the, your question is quite compact. We can uh, dissect it down into... I will start with education. I need... Uh, first of all, we need climate literacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, for uh, because our curriculum from primary school until university, for every major, we need to have... We need to actually have give people skills to be able to apply sustainability in every kind of major and aspect of life. So when, especially when you have an education system, when you have a curriculum from a very young age that teaches you, for example, in our geography classes, I remember very well, it teaches you that they, we are sitting above an endless, never-ending black gold which encourages that's what they call petroleum, the fossil fuels. They call it that in the U.S. as well. Really? Okay. Yeah. Or Texas tea. <laughs> so when you are grown with that idea, you never actually question it. You think that it's actually it's your savior, not the problem. Mm-hmm. So you, you are never actually questioning it. So everyone, everyone that grows up and becomes the fabric of the nation, they're all going into... In, they don't see any problems with it. When it's actually one of the biggest problems, and it's causing uh, health effects, environmental pollution in your daily life, the water scarcity that we have been seeing, the air pollution, and I'm just talking about the things that are observable. I'm not even talking about the long term, the the biodiversity loss that we have in the region, mm-hmm. the the soil erosion that we have been facing, which also goes into the city planning of it also, which you asked. I mean, when you when you have a cities, the buildings, the planning of it, which I, I would say actually the lack of planning, because when you have all of these complexes being built without the regard of environmental sustainability, which is depleting the water resources of the region, when there's droughts or when there's floods, you see the effects. The buildings are not made to be like sustainable and also compatible to that to the environment of this region, mm-hmm. and also that's not just a, like the buildings itself. When we talk about the urban planning of it, when you have no public transportation, when the city is from an urban planning perspective is considered dead because it's not walkable, mm-hmm. you need private cars. You need a lot of uh, use of energy. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not the public's fault. The system is not in place. It's not planned accordingly. 
there's so many, as I said, there's so many factors that goes into it from architecture, from city planning, from government side, from the corporations, the companies that build these kind of complexes, the city that it, it's a lot of factors. There's education as well. The people who finish and take that road without even asking questions. Mm-hmm. Is it the right way? Are we doing it the right way? Just because it has been done, does that mean it's the it's it's the solution. So why does this system exist in the first place? Why why how did the city become so unwalkable? How how did the system in place be, uh, for architecture become so unsafe and unsustainable? Uh, I I mean we are a recovering country after all. Mm-hmm. So when you uh, and we have been seeing that rapid change of development quite uh, quite fast. I don't think there has been a plan in place. If there were a plan. I mean, uh, not to forget to mention the lack of greenery. Mm-hmm. So uh, it has been kind of, when you lo- look at the planning, it's kind of chaotic mm-hmm. because there is no plan in place. If there were a plan in place, yeah, there have always been uh, promises for public transportation. There have always been promises. Uh, I actually I haven't heard any promises for greenery, but let's say there is. <laughs> yeah, Park Sammy, that's all you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, when you look at the map of Erbil, actually, it's quite sad. It's just yeah. like one dot of greenery and the rest is be- uh, beige color. Yeah. Yeah, so you don't want to see Erbil during the day when you are t- uh, going to the airport and your plane is taken off. You just want to see it at night. It's quite beautiful mm-hmm. at night. Yeah, because it's quite sad when you see how it's like a desert, which Erbil is actually quite famous for having a fertile land. Yeah. When all of its, right now, all of its land is being commercialized mm-hmm. and which leads to soil erosion also. And we are seeing the the so-called natural disasters which are not really natural anymore. What are those natural disasters? I mean, we are seeing floods mm-hmm. and the aftermath of the floods. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you had a proper infrastructure, which actually also the climate crisis is going to be affecting, damaging our infrastructures quite a lot, but you don't have a proper sea planning. All of your infrastructure is actually, I don't think we have a proper infrastructure. Let's begin with. And when, you, when your soil is not able to anymore to absorb any water, uh, and take it in to have, you know, uh, water reservoirs underground, then it leads to soil erosion because then all of this fertile land has been turned into concrete. So, yeah. So when you think about it, there shouldn't actually be floods, even no matter how heavy the rain is. If you have a proper plan, a city planning, floods will not happen. And actually, you also see it sometimes to com- when you compare some of the and really not well-built complexes to decently made places in Erbil. Mm-hmm. You see the effects of them when there's a flood or when the extreme heats that we are facing. None of the buildings are made uh, in a way that's, that can actually withhold the, the, the weather conditions of are, this region. Are made with materials that are not Exactly. And the, yeah. the energy resources that's needed, it's not even being considered how much energy is needed. So our buildings need to be to, to stay up to date with with how the the world is changing, mm-hmm. and there's currently no you know universal code being applied to these buildings. No, actually, it's uh, it's not some kind of mystery of how are we going to do it. It's all out there. It's actually there's a there's it's actually part of every curriculum in architecture and city planning and uh, urban design. There are sustainable approaches to building. It's all has been set for a really long time, but there are. Uh, they are not being applied here in most, let's say, 
I'm going to talk about our country. No, they're not being applied here. Mm-hmm. So it, the solution is right there. So we are talking not just for the city planning. We are talking about, about a lot of issues. Maybe some people are listening. They're like, oh my God, what are you going to do? It's like, oh, we have no other solution. That's the end. No, we already have all of the solutions. It's not like we are going to wait 100 years or 50 years. We have the technology. We have the knowledge. We know what's causing it. So the issue has already been diagnosed. The only thing that we need is the willpower. And the willpower, it goes back to the policymakers and the governments and the corporations. Yes, and also awareness within the people because i mean if if when corporations and governments and all of these uh, uh big people that have a hand in you know profit they don't see any call for change they continue on their way because they're mostly most of them i don't want to generalize but unfortunately that's the case when your whole purpose and whole focus on profit then you wouldn't think about anything else. But if the people are calling for change, there's awareness, there's climate literacy, and our futures are at stake. Both of them, hand hand in hand, the governments, the corporations, and the public, we can drive some change. We can call for some change. And and actually, policymakers, they want to listen to people because at the end of the day, it's the people that's going to, they are serving the people. Theoretically, let's yeah. let's uh, <laughs> let's <laughs> dance. You know, let's dance around that for a second because uh, I promised you we wouldn't get too much into politics. But um, one thing that that uh, I think would probably get bring about awareness in the public more is if they were more aware of sort of how these little technical aspects about, for example, soil erosion, green spaces, uh, uh, architectural planning and and sustainable resources in buildings and things like that. Things that you don't think about from a day-to-day basis because you're just a person trying to like live your life. Uh, And and you shouldn't be actually. It's not your job. Mm. The reason why it's not being, the reason it's not being cared about and thought about from um, from the people that are responsible, that's why right now the public are calling for change. It's not the it's not this uh, the youth is it's not this new generation's job actually to be have climate anxiety mm-hmm. and to constantly think about our futures whether we have a future or not. Because let's face it, climate change is not happening to penguins in Antarctica, mm. or it's not going to happen in fifty years. It's already happening and it's going to worsen. It's not like the whole Earth is going to collapse in one day. It's actually going to be a slow death. Okay, a suffering. So, if we don't do anything, that doesn't mean it's our future. So, we have hope. So, what I what I want to what I want to get into is is people often pay attention to uh, issues when it affects them socially, not scientifically. Hmm. Uh, and so, going back to sort of the beginning of this conversation about intersectionality uh, and the different ways that intersectionality can uh, affect, for example, I'll use gender equality uh, inequality uh, as a uh, um, as an example of how you can bring someone who's interested in in topics regarding uh, uh, women's liberation and 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 freedom of movement and things like that, how you can bring that topic and bring sort of uh, uh, a different group of people who might not know much about the environmental topics of Arabil uh, into the fold. I would say actually the uh, feminist movement is quite integrated within the environmental. Uh, movement because whether we like it or not we live in a patriarchal system mm-hmm. and that patriarchal system there is a lot uh, the gender inequality whenever there's a catastrophe whatever that we see the effects of climate women and children are the first people to be affected by it and that's not just because it's something that 
just happens is because of the lack of resources, mm-hmm. the lack of independence, the lack of... We see it, for example, when there's the class differences also. So, yes, it, it does p- play a huge part, and that's why... How so, though? Could you explain, like, give me specific, like, examples? Okay, so, for example, when we are, we have a flood here, mm-hmm. it's usually when the people... When women and children are dependent on the men, okay, first of all, then we have people who are underprivileged, the poor, and uh, people who are financially financially not independent. So all of these people, that means they are not living in proper places. They are living in poor places. They don't have access to resources or basic life support. So it's going to be... So the system actually... Initially, before even the catastrophe hits anyone, it's affecting affecting them. They are being affected. When the climate crisis and the catastrophes happen, they are going to be first affected because they don't have any other place to go to. They don't have the resources mm-hmm. to. They don't have. They don't like. They don't have the resources to actually get themselves out of that situation to help themselves. So you've worked in uh, uh, education, uh, bringing about uh, climate education. Uh, uh, to schools in Erbil uh, before. And I was wondering if you could describe that project and whether you consider it a success or not and, and, and what you want to implement with that project in the future. Yeah, sure. I think I can talk about it. Uh, it, would be a, it was a success because whenever I would go to schools from primary, uh, secondary, high school and universities, especially the younger generation, you see how... how in it, uninformed most people are and how hungry actually they are for the mm-hmm. topic they do care about it if from a very a very really young age we teach our people that it's our future at stake they do care about it and then when they grow up and become the people who make decisions who become as i said the fabric of the nation they are going to be thinking about what they learned since a very young age so yeah it has been quite effective in terms of People actually, I have had people like ask, especially young kids, what can we do in our daily life? And also, we have to also make sure that whenever I was working on that, you got to know how to talk to young kids about this topic. You, mm-hmm. you shouldn't scare them away. You have to tell them only why is it happening, what's causing it, and what can we do to make it better. Mm-hmm. So they have to be aware of it. They're realistically, we shouldn't sugarcoat it, of course, but not to tell them all of the scary parts and the things that they don't have a power over it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a follow-up about your current work is more in cultural exchange. Uh, and so I'm wondering how you reconcile sort of your own, your current job, which doesn't directly connect to the environment uh, or environmental advocacy, rather, uh, how you reconcile that with your 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 uh, background in advocacy? Yeah, for sure. I mean, let's talk about this culture. Culture plays a huge role in social mobility for any population. For them to be able, first of all, of course, they need basic needs. But after that, for any people to be able to consider why they should care about something, culturally speaking, artistic wise. Uh, when you when you talk about the things in life that feed our soul, it is important. They, they you will grow empathy. You will have care for other things. How to t- take care of the environment, the sur- your surrounding. So when there are, there are different kinds of activities being displayed, and in each one of them, not directly, but there's also always indirectly some inkling of you know what's happening or situation, whether whether it's intentional or not. So people. The more people are 
aware of what's happening or the more people are actually connected to the social fabric or the, you know, trying to people bring from a, to just hire their social mobility within the whole population, try to care about something that's greater for the greater good. It's going to bring some change within the mentality, within how they act, within how they go about their day. So we need cultural change. And also we need traditional, some traditions to be dismantled. Because when we, for example, there's a lot of practice, practices that we are still doing, not just here, but worldwide. But let's focus on here. But here's the thing. So many things people don't know are they are doing just because they have been done, uh, how they have been done throughout mm-hmm. history. They are not they are not morally or ethically justifiable. Like what? I mean, the way we exploit... Uh, I'm t- going to talk about it through the environmental uh, lens again. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of other examples, of course. But I'm going to talk about the exploitation of animals and nature. Okay. And, for example, the way we are treating animals. Just because when you ask some, some people, they say, well, that's how it always has been. We are at the top of the pyramid. Just because we have power does not mean that we cannot morally justify doing something bad to another living being just because it has always been like that. Not everything that's legal actually does not mean it's moral or ethical. Let's talk about your foundation a little bit uh, uh, and wrap this up because I think uh, think your foundation is very interesting and I think uh, it it connects sort of the larger philosophy that you've used to approach this uh, topic. It's a very complicated topic. Um, and so I'm curious about where you got the idea to start it and where you want to take it in the future. Sure. So it, it first started when I noticed that, I mean, actually, we, we started this uh, with the word climate and the weather. So whenever, <laughs> like a couple of years ago, about five, six, I don't exactly remember the, how, how long it was. But when I started to get more and more into it and I would start to talk about it, whether I was in school or university, especially in our community, first of all, there is still a a huge lack of information regarding with data and analysis, but within the people's awareness also. And when you even talk to people uh, within the, the Kurdish language, when, as I said, there is no difference between weather and climate. So you see that, first of all, people don't know actually what it is. Then you see they have no idea what's happening. And some people might, as I said, there's this idea of it's happening in another continent or it's happening to the penguins. It's so far from us. But it's actually our... (laughs) Penguins are getting a real shout out in this interview. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, most people think it's just like, you know, Antarctica is melting down. It's Mm -hmm. not just there, Uh, even though it's, it's quite getting worse there. But it's the... We need awareness within the people for any for any change to for to be possible. Mm-hmm. Let's say we have the perfect policymakers, the perfect corporations with ethical and moral standards. If the people don't want that, how are you going to convince the people? If they uh, they say no, this is not an issue. We, like they don't even see it as an issue. Let's start with that. So we have to bring the awareness first. We have to tell people why it's affecting them and the things that be, they are being affected by is actually caused by environment. So that's why I started the foundation. Is the climate change and environmental awareness, how we should take care about it, uh, as I said, through curriculums, through talking to students, going to schools, and, you know, yeah, just trying to raise awareness regarding this topic. Well, Angie, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's a big week for uh, 
climate conversations. And I'm, I'm glad that you uh, uh, made the time to stop by. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about this topic. It's quite essential. And thank you for giving it a platform. Cheers. Thanks again to Angie Jauher for taking the time and coming to the studio. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network, and you can check out our podcast on kurdistanin.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at info at kurdistanin.net. Thanks so much. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. <laughs>